You're listening to CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto, and this is Speaking for Change. I'm Kike Roach. For the past six years, I've been the Unifor National Chair in Social Justice and Democracy at Toronto Metropolitan University. The mandate of the chair is to create a hub of interaction between social justice activists and the academic community. In 2011, Winnie Ng and Salman Khan started Social Justice Week, and it's since continued under my stewardship. Every year, it has brought together TMU students, staff, faculty, and the broader community to raise awareness and inspire action. Over the years, we've hosted dozens of notable speakers, centered essential conversations, and encouraged and supported countless students to become more engaged in their communities. The fall of 2022 marked the final edition of Social Justice Week. A dozen years of events has left us a valuable archive of recordings touching on issues that remain extremely relevant today. So we wanted to share some of them with you. Speaking for Change is a weekly series of recordings from the past decade-plus of Social Justice Week, a space to reflect on and celebrate the work of progressive changemakers. For the first time in Canadian history, we have a self-identified feminist prime minister, as well as a federal cabinet made up of 50% women. Yet gender inequality and sexist exploitation continue to be a daily lived reality. The global pandemic has brought with it an increase in domestic violence, massive job losses for women, and increased domestic workload. This panel, which took place during Social Justice Week 2020, seeks to critically engage with the past, present, and future of feminism and feminist organizing in Canada. Panelists share their views on the state of modern feminism, the barriers to broad-based mobilization, and the ongoing challenges involved in building an organized and intersectional movement against patriarchy. Here are the speakers you'll hear from. Beverly Bain is a Black queer feminist, anti-racism, anti-capitalist scholar, and activist who teaches in Women and Gender Studies at the University of Toronto. Nora Loretto is the author of Take Back the Fight, Organizing Feminism in the Digital Age. She is an activist who writes regularly for magazines, newspapers, and online outlets. Harsha Walia is the executive director of the BC Liberties Association and the author of Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism, and the Rise of Racist Nationalism. The discussion was moderated by journalist Vicky Mochama. Let me start by saying that there is a general consensus that from its earlier years in the mid to late 60s, that the Canadian women's movement had two distinct streams of development. On the one hand, there were women from the established women's uh, movements, such as the Voice of Women, the Canadian Federation of University Women, and the Fédération des Femmes de Québec. And on the other, there was the community-based or grassroots movement. But I want to shift that narrative of understanding Canadian women's feminist movement in Canada, like others such as Linda Carty, Dion Brand, Mary Jo Nadeau, and Judy Rebick in her 10,000 Roses, where she actually did a whole uh, historical um, review of the women's movement and the um, Royal Commission on the Status of Women, which actually you know, was the forerunner of the National Action Committee on the Status of Women. The government wanted to manage that and to handle that. The recommendations, 161, came out of that and was 
placed on um, on hiatus, like all other recommendations for everything that gets, um, especially when it means change and, and holding the government accountable, got placed on hold. And of course, they were all relative to um, equality rights issues for women. And that led to NAC coming into existence, the National Action Committee on the Status of Women, to actually sort of be the groundwork of the women's movement and to take up those recommendations. But I'm wanting to shift the narrative of understanding the Canadian women's feminist movement because it is important to understand that in various ways during the periods of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, Black and racialized feminists were engaged in spaces with white feminists while organizing in their own spaces. I want to actually argue to rethink the kind of power issues that shaped the movement, which were really very homogenized power uh, that shaped everything along dichotomous lines, which it did because of the way societies organized, but also to say that it wasn't that rigid and clear and linear, that there were a lot of interruptions and a lot of interventions being made by different factions of the women's movement. The Royal Commission on the Status of Women, which later formed itself into NAP, continued to work on securing equality rights and women for women was made up of feminists from the already established groups that I mentioned and included women from labor and Aboriginal women. Yet the issues that NAC came to be identified with were that of a liberal feminist discourse on equality rights. Nadeau carefully traces what she calls NAC articulated its identity through various discursive emergencies, emergences, she says, specifically hegemonic, political, racial, and national discourses of liberal feminism, unmarked whiteness and discourse of unity and diversity. So in spite of the fact that there were challenges from other white feminists, from the labor movement and other movements, and from racialized movements, that NAC still, uh, through its you know, frame in relation to state and lobbying and being funded by the state and uh, actually operating in context of depending on which government at the time was in power and how one engages in lobbying with that government and the fact that whiteness and gender were the organizing factors. Um, we see that within NAC itself, that there was this organizing around particular racial and national discourses of liberal feminism, of whiteness, of unity and diversity. Central to Nadu's argument is that these discourses, practices of whiteness and nation, was the way the organization continued to maintain itself as white and mainstream. So NAC's lobbying focus meant it relied on a large number of member groups to legitimize itself as the leader or as constituting the women's movement and feminism in Canada. But as Rebic in her book, 10,000 Roses, demonstrated, NAC was a site of contestations on issues from its beginning, but more so in the 90s with the shift from a leadership that was primarily white to one that reflected women of color. Wonderful. I think that's a, a broad history. And I wanted to ask you very quickly if you could tell us about, you know, that second stream of that women of color who were challenging and contesting what NAC was doing. And that second stream was actually, um, I mean, in the 90s in particular, was when you saw NAC shifted. Because at that point, uh, NAC actually started, there were more racialized women who actually started um, becoming involved in NAC. NAC, you know, had a series of member groups. 
And these women who were member groups were also, some included NOIBOM, the National Organization of Immigrant and White uh, Women, some in, in the Congress of Black Women, and other organizations that included racialized women, Intercede, which included um, Filipino women, and other organizations that included. Some of these women um, became board members of NAC. And that started shifting the ground of NAC during that period. But simultaneously, while that was happening, there were other con contestation happening, particularly IWD, the International Women's Day Committee, right? Uh, there were other contestations happening within the movement. And what I'm trying to do here is to shift this sort of, you know, this linear and dichotomous and this idea of waves. There were more pushes coming from all different positions, all different points, right? Black women were organizing uh, in coalitions with other um, racialized women. They were organizing separately, and they were all organizing around more than equality rights. They were organizing around labor issues, but organizing in the context of issues of migration, issues of shifting the ground in terms of the actual politics, the one that actually reframed the political landscape to look at politics in the context of transnationalism, yeah. to look at it in the context of left-wing politics. And IWD also was formed from by Marxist feminists and labor activists, but they also consolidated around whiteness. And I just want to end with something that I think is really critical because the Black Women's Collective did something very profound in shifting the ground of IWD and also shifting the ground of the feminist movement. And I'll end here. Dion Brand, and this um, came from a discussion she had with Judy Rebick. Dion Brand said, we came into the room, and this is what she was talking about IWD, and said, wait a second, what do you mean and how do you do this? And what kind of decisions are you making? There was capable women who had run IWD for a long time, and the bureaucracy of it was well in hand. So we came in conflict with some of, of, of the ways they did things. Suddenly it was very charged. We also had connections with some Aboriginal women in the Native Women's Group. We got in touch with all of them. We invited them to the meetings. And then we got in and we saw that they were deciding about how IWD should go. And we said, hold it, right? We stopped the meeting. We said that, you know, decisions got made without necessarily being democratic. That racism in the society means something about how power is distributed. You can't have the tyranny of the majority. That shook things up in the coalition that year. And it's in 2000 that we saw the dismantling of the feminist movement. And it was attributed, I would argue, to the rise of neoliberal conservative um, agenda, the multiple power relations that were operating in spaces of feminist mobilization and activism that sought to undo a lot of binaries that fostered the production of rigid binaries. I think that's a fantastic spot to bring Nora in because, Nora, that's that's where your book picks up, which is, you know, not only is Beverly talking about the dismantling of the feminist movement, but you pick up at the opening and expansion of the digital age, which is where the internet comes in. Talk to us about how the digital age has impacted feminist organizing in Canada. Yeah, um, that is it is a perfect way to segue into this because look at how NAC collapsed. And, and I go through this uh, in, in the book. It's exactly that. It was the confluence of white supremacy within the women's movement and white feminists' uh, inability, refusal, uh, or errors in, in Judy's book, uh, there's there's women that express regrets that had they known or whatever, they would have acted different white women. Uh, they would have acted differently at that time. But that at the same time as the rise of neoliberalism just destroyed the way that feminists in the mainstream movement had been operating for years. And so what I was very interested in as someone who came to age 
under Mike Harris, you know, um, being on my parents being on strike and learning about labor relations in a very direct way under Mike Harris. And that was in Ontario in the 90s. Yeah. In, in Ontario in the 90s, in the summer of 1997, which was in November when we were all on strike. The, the rise of neoliberalism meant that all movements uh, had to fundamentally change. And I think that the late 1990s, uh, in the popular kind of memory of, of activism, we think of globalization and how the globalization movement really hit uh, its peak, moving right towards September 11th, 2001, when all of a sudden, you know, organizing changed with incredible repressive against racism, Islamophobia, and then, of course, uh, the war in Afghanistan. And so uh, feminism during this moment, it, it doesn't go away, of course. There's still feminists that are organizing, but it tends to go into back into those collectives, into community-based uh, groups. Or, and, and, and Judy uh, Rebick made this point to me in a way that like, I, didn't, I didn't really know, I didn't appreciate. She said, we're seeing movements led by women, especially racialized women, that were not women's issues. So we're seeing women's uh, leadership, uh, Harsha, of course, being a really major part of that. Uh, within uh, migrant justice organizing, you know, and is illegal and and OCAP, Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, a lot of other movements that would kind of underpin what the left looked like, like in the 1990s and into the 2000s. The digital era, though, has really changed how everything organizes. And what has been so fascinating about feminism is we're in this era now where if you ask an average person, are you a feminist or not a feminist, they aren't likely to tell you that that's a, a bad word and they're not. And they, of course, they're feminists. And I think the, the most obvious example of this was, of course, Justin Trudeau trying to become the feminist prime minister uh, as his first order of business. Not like after having done literally anything, he just announced his cabinet and he said he was a, a feminist because his cabinet had had, had a gender balanced uh, cabinet, which, of course, was something that Francois Legault, who's, who's uh, Quebec's premier, who is not progressive or a feminist, he also had a gender balanced cabinet for his first uh, cabinet in 2018. So it wasn't a big deal. But why then was there not much challenge to that narrative that Justin Trudeau is a feminist? You know, journalists ran away with it, and uh, and he and he mostly got a, got away. At the same time, we're seeing the rise of things online like Me Too, been raped, never reported, which is of course the precursor to like a Canadian version of Me Too, and uh, this incredible activism uh, under the banner of feminism, run uh, mostly by racialized young feminists doing incredible work but not necessarily getting into influencing government policy. And part of it, and this is what I argue in the book, is because the government has done such a good job at assuming what feminism is, because in the neoliberal era, it becomes about self-identity. And it doesn't actually become about the work that you do, and it doesn't become about the, the, the social policies that you might enact. It just becomes about identity, and then it becomes about how much money you're giving away to what organization. And so we've seen in, increased funding to women's organizations like the YWCA, uh, and other community-based organizations, but we still have a government that is absolutely not feminist. And so looking at the title of this talk, Gendering the Politics, it's so interesting that we can have a government that calls itself feminist at the same time as a crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women. We have a crisis of resource extraction that, of course, has uh, feminist implications. And then we have a, a prime minister says, well, you know, we're going to run the Trans Mountain Pipeline through a gender-based analysis. You know, we're going to run the Site C Dam project through a gender-based analysis. And if you recall when they said that, 
Jason Kenney was like, well, uh, these jobs provide good money for men. And and the government never had an ability to push back and say, well, actually, there is a gender-based analysis to be had on these projects. And guess what? The, the results are going to be not in your favor uh, of feminism, right? The results can be that these projects actually cause misogyny, racism, colonialism, which, of course, these things are all connected. So the digital era has, has in some ways allowed people to discover feminism, uh, has allowed people to, to take the mantle of feminism on like never before. But it hasn't necessarily given people the ways to organize, to bring their their personal beliefs into something broader. And so that's what I'm really interested in. And that's what I hope that we can talk about a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I want to jump off what you mentioned about, you know, the various crises that are happening in Canada and how the feminist movement has responded or not responded to them. And we are in, you know, the largest health crisis I think the world has ever faced collectively. But, you know, we're hearing in a number of ways that the pandemic has hit women extremely hard. I also want to, you know, bring in Harsha for this because borders themselves have become a public health tool and many of the economic gains that women have had have been effectively erased. Can you talk to us about how you see the impact of COVID on women? Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, it's such an honor to be in this in this conversation. Um, I want to say that I'm on unceded post Salish territories before I start these lands belong to the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squahomish people. Um, and this is, of course, so pertinent uh, in, to this conversation as well, right? Because we know that's, that one of the main pillars of settler colonialism was gendered colonial violence, was the specific targeting of Indigenous women, trans and two-spirit people, um, and Indigenous children. Um, and so, you know, when we're thinking about gendering the political landscape, of course, that's such a pillar in terms of also eradicating settler colonialism. And here I want to invoke the words of Jessica Danforth, who, when asked to comment about feminist waves, uh, said, quote, the waves, we are the ocean. And so I just want to, you know, bring that into this space. And it really resonates with everything Dr. Bain or, or Beverly Sori and Nora have talked about in terms of, you know, how do we even think about feminism? Right. Is it simply about thinking about those who are in the silo of women's issues? Or are we thinking about the ways in which women and trans people queer folks are really at the center of all social movements and that, you know, can we actually have a feminism to pick up on what Nora was saying? Can we actually have a feminism that is not anti-capitalist, anti-colonial, anti-imperialist, anti-racist and more? And, you know, I think we would all argue that you can't, right? That doesn't give you feminism in terms of what feminism has always intended to be. And that is something that becomes very stark in the context of COVID, where absolutely we see you know, the disproportionate impact on women. And that's an intentional disproportionate impact because we know that the system was based on many, many violences, including gendered violence of social reproduction of life, right? The ways in which that is unwaged or underwaged in which that is devalued. And so with COVID, we see a number of things happening. We, of course, see uh, the added burden of domestic work on women, whether that's, you know, the added burden of, of child care and domestic labor. And that includes that's across the classes. Right. I'm not talking about rich and middle class folks who are you know suddenly whining about not being able to pay for domestic work. I'm talking about the added burden with schools closing, et cetera, that falls across classes on all women particularly on women. And so, you know, we see the added burden of labor, un often unveiled and unenumerated and invisible gendered labor that COVID is bringing on women. The added strain of lifting emotional labor in spaces of dealing with the consequences of social isolation and carrying that, that lift of emotional work. 
we're seeing, as we're seeing in many cities, an increase in domestic violence and intimate partner violence that are being reported across cities because, of course, we have, you know, the ways in which violence manifests, the ways in which the external plays itself out in the interpersonal and the ways in which those are connected. So we have all of these that are operating in the intimate sphere. And of course, as feminists, we know there is no intimate sphere, right? Everything that is private has deliberately been made private and privatized to remove it uh, from public conversation. And then we also have the very real ways in which uh, particularly oppressed women are impacted. So, you know, women are the ones who are most likely, especially and particularly racialized immigrant women who are classified as essential workers, which we know means that you are essential to capitalism, but you yourself are disposable, right? So in some of the most unsafe working conditions, whether that's the front line of healthcare or that's retail workers, or that is care workers. Um, and, you know, I would want to point out that just yesterday, migrant care workers released a very important report on the experiences of migrant care workers during the COVID pandemic. I'd really suggest people take a look at it, you know, and the ways in which the um, COVID has really exacerbated the marginalization and exploitation of migrant women workers in particular um, in every sector. We also have, you know, it's not a coincidence that some of the largest outbreaks of COVID are happening in prisons. And some of the largest outbreaks have been in women's prisons. And in opposition to a kind of, you know, liberal feminism that Dr. Bain was talking about, you know, it's, it's been quite encouraging to see the rise of an anti-carceral and abolitionist feminism informed by black feminism that rejects that rejects prisons as a solution uh, to situations of violence, right? That rejects prisons and policing and caging as a solution to any form of violence. And, you know, we see this, and this is particularly important in COVID because prisons are an epicenter of the pandemic, including women's prisons. And we're seeing the perversion. We're now in some prisons, we're even seeing, we're under the guise of, you know, preventative care. More and more women are being put into solitary confinement or health segregation. And so we're seeing even more punitive measures within prisons under the guise of supposedly keeping incarcerated people safe, which is, you know, the weaponization of the pandemic to bring in more repression, to bring in more austerity, bring in more punitive measures. You know, we're also, of course, in the context of COVID not seeing, though, you know, though so many things have been uh, stalled, you know, the border has closed. So we're told that refugees whose movement is actually essential, right? There is arguably no, no more essential movement across borders than that of refugees who are seeking safety, who are fleeing persecution. So, you know, refugees have, as Vicky pointed out, are having to contend with a completely shut down border. The country agreement was recently found to be unconstitutional and illegal. The refugees cannot seek safety, though, of course, you know, visitor visas, you know, luxury visas and the visas of migrant workers, including women migrant workers, continue to be processed because, again, the essential movement of capital needs to continue under COVID. But the safety of people is completely disposable. And we continue to see the repressive arm of the state, you know, with with ongoing police murders, particularly of black and brown and indigenous women and especially black and indigenous women. Uh, with Regis Kuczynski, Paquette, Chantel Moore, and many others who continue to be murdered. And this is where particularly the Black feminist invocation of Say Her Name is so vital, which is a feminist invocation. And of course, you know, Idle No More and Black Lives Matter continues and are feminist movements, are feminist movements in that they are led and they are grounded in a feminist politic that goes, that is a deeper feminist analysis 
than the kind of liberal feminism that Dr. Bain was talking about, right? It's it's feminism that has always been the ocean, <laughs> um, that has always been here. And so there are so many ways in which like the COVID pandemic has exacerbated the violences that oppressed women face. And at the same time, we see the rise in both digital and mass movement um, organizing that is centering a different kind of feminism. And, you know, I want to be clear here that it's different. It's not new, but really revitalizing and growing on a feminism that has always been with us in different ways, that has always contested a liberal feminism, but that is really now taking an increasingly center stage and is really on the shoulders of giants, right? We stand on the shoulder of all the giants before us that have made this possible, um, but that are articulating a deeply um, robust feminism that is anti-capitalist, that is anti-imperialist, that is anti-colonial, and that meaningfully centers the experiences of trans women, of sex workers, of migrant workers, uh, of Black and Indigenous women, right? And that really understands that the entire social organization of our world is built on gendered violence that's connected to so many other kinds of violences. And I think I, I want to jump on something that you mentioned about how the pandemic has exacerbated so many of these conditions that we knew were abysmal, but has now pushed them to a real crisis level. And I'm going to open this up to everybody to jump in. I wonder, is the pandemic, is that something you would consider a setback for feminism or is it an opportunity for feminists to begin to organize? Um, I just want to say, uh, just kind of clarify very, very quickly, because I think it's really important that what we're seeing now in terms of the movement, which actually is, you know, grounded in feminist politics, that that grounding and that feminist politics existed during that era of the 80s and the 90s and was a politic that Black radical feminists who were lesbians and uh, were queer during those periods actually pushed forward into other movements, particularly we saw that in IWD. So that particular grounding has always been there. And I, and I think what needs to be really clear and what needs to be really clarified is that what we're seeing now in terms of the kinds of political organizing is not only just grounded in a left politics, but it's grounded also in a black radical feminist queer politic that actually is shaping the struggle is shaping the movement as we see a particular kind of indigenous resurgent and refusal movement is shaping the indigenous movement today. And that was always present, but is resurfacing because of the conditions that we are experiencing has given rise to this kind of resurgence. Not that they weren't there before, but it has given rise and new elements have been introduced but we, uh, which might mean the movement has been expanded. It's less homogenized, but it's really grounded in that black um, political radical politic that I think needs to be identified. Also, in terms of answering your question about whether the pandemic is a, an opening for feminist activism or it, it's a hampering, the pandemic, I see it actually as the only opportunity, I see it as the opportunity for us to rethink political organizing, right? I do see that the pandemic does that at this point because really we have no other alternative as far as I'm concerned. I think we are living one of the most difficult times for most of the people who are living today. Have, have Actually, they've never lived through a pandemic. Neither have they witnessed such fracturing in terms of political and social economic context, in terms of how that is affecting people. 
I mean, the thing that the pandemic has done, it has give, it has actually allowed us to see how public health policies and policing and other forms of surveillance and other ways in which economic and sociopolitical policies are actually particularly shaping the lives of particular people for death, <laughs> you know, even more so today. So we see what it's doing for indigenous people. We're seeing, I mean, these things have been happening, but what it's doing is that it's actually putting front and center whose lives actually matter and whose lives don't. So, you know, immigrant and racialized migrant women who are uh, living without status, who are fleeing for their lives, you know, um, black women, women incarcerated, racialized, indigenous women, particularly other women who are the most, as Howard says, are the most at risk. What we also see is that there is something to be said about this particular climate as it actually veers down on particular bodies more than others, which is why the kinds of political activism that needs to take place has to be led by particular people in the movement. It has to be facilitated as it's being facilitated now, you know, through an uprising that involves and is led by black queer radical feminist, an uprising that also is led by indigenous uh, women. And I think that is where, and that's the direction that we have to go in, in terms of the kinds of organizing that needs to happen that we need to be organizing along the line that actually focuses on the afterlife of slavery and the genocide of indigenous people. Nora, I want to I want to bring you in on that because, you know, when you were speaking, you mentioned that some political organizing is happening in the digital age. It's, you know, in that kind of awareness space, but it's not necessarily bringing forth policy changes and changes that are substantive to what uh, a number of people need. And so I look across the country, you know, we have maybe a feminist prime minister at the top. We have a lot of grassroots organizing around feminist policy and feminist ideas. But then there are, you know, almost coast to coast men leading the country who I would not describe as anywhere near feminist or even interested in feminism. How can those, you know, challenges be tackled in this era? Yeah, it's a funny kind of separation of, of activism, right? Where the most radical activism that is happening right now is is land reclamation struggles and Black Lives Matter, defund the police, uh, abolitionist struggles. And how do those struggles intersect with forcing your local member of parliament, who's probably bad, uh, to do something? And, and that guy probably has no power anyway to do it. And so what I think that the pandemic has done is the veneer that has covered a lot of these realities up for, for so many people who cannot who have not seen them or who have refused to see them. The veneer did not anticipate staying a veneer during a pandemic. And so that veneer has collapsed and everything is now laid bare such that even people in power cannot deny what people have been saying for, for, for generations are the problems in this country. And so like one of the things that I, I think about a lot is it's like, how do we get people who are more isolated than they have been because of the pandemic isolating people, whether whether you're isolated to your work, whether you're isolated to your home, whether you're a student that's trying to do class online, how do you get those people together, have a space for people to develop radical politics and find the movements that they can get involved in that goes beyond those awareness campaigns? Because I think that the, that, the, that the struggles that are the most radical, the, the, that are doing the most right now, I personally have, not only do I have no place, but I have no criticisms. Like I have no thing to say, oh, uh, you know, the folks at Land Back Lane aren't doing that correctly. I mean, everything there is like amazing. And I just, I sit back and I'm like, how can I help? How can I support? 
And then I think of the struggles that I'm involved in in Quebec City that are uh, related to Islamophobia and racism in the city. And, and, and then, like, how do we get people together in the pandemic? And that's where I'm, I'm really struggling to think about these ways of organizing. And I think, as Beverly is saying, this, this moment to actually throw out how we organize, throw out the traditional ways that we interact with politicians, throw out the way um, that we look at lobbying and how we use certain amounts of money to try and use money to create change. I think now is the time that we can finally say to people who are sympathetic to those kinds of ways of organizing to say, that's not going to, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. That might create some minor reforms. And here's the result of those reforms. The result is that they might help some people, but they will leave most people behind. And so for me, this moment is also really important because it's a radicalizing moment. And, and I've seen that radicalization across a lot of different kinds of people, people who uh, weren't at all involved in politics, people who may have been minorly you know, interested in voting, maybe liberal, maybe NDP, are, are now looking back at, at looking at things and saying, oh, you're actually naming the experiences that I have, or the experiences that I've seen my families had. How do we go further than lobbying and, and these traditional uh, forms of activism? And the problem, of course, is that the internet has told a lot of people of a certain generation that change does come through awareness, right? Change comes through maybe a representation here and there, a little bit of awareness, and then that's all it takes, which um, I think, you know, as we're talking about, that's that's not true. And so there's also a lot of work to be done to make sure that we're on kind of teaching that uh, for the for those generations that have only lived with the internet to say like, here are, here are the tools that the internet provides and here are the difficulties in terms of allowing us to organize uh, in real life or across regions, across difference, across language, across movement. And I'm very, very, very optimistic about our, our prospects to do that. I think that this is a moment that I've never, obviously, like none of us have ever seen, but the spirit around organizing right now is just really incredible while we're also like, oh, can we go into the streets? And of course, the answer to that was was answered by Black Lives Matter in June, saying, of course, we can go in the streets. We need to go in the streets right now. And, you know, people are like, hey, we can go into the streets, even though we're in the middle of a pandemic. But like a lot to be learned, for sure. Arsha, are you equally optimistic? Depends on the day. I'm very optimistic <laughs> listening to Beverly and Nora, to be honest. <laughs> You'd asked me yesterday, I would have said no, or even an hour ago. I think... I am very optimistic for all the reasons that we've talked about, right, which is that the terrain is is completely shifted. And when that terrain shifts, there's so much that we can build and continue to build. And, you know, again, emphasizing and, and following up, Beverly was saying nothing's new. This is all ground that we've gained and inherited from struggles before, you know, and even in thinking about, for example, the example that I gave of the migrant workers report that recently came out, we know that, you know, one of the the grandmother of all migrant worker organizations was intercede in the 1980s, which is, you know, a black feminist migrant worker organization that fought particularly for Caribbean women uh, and Caribbean migrant workers. So everything, all work that we do uh, builds on on existing work um, and builds on existing movements. And, and specifically, um, as Beverly was saying, our current movements and the ways in which we gain and build on black queer feminist organizing and indigenous women's organizing on these lands. That is what makes me optimistic is that that ground was always there and is is resurging in ways that are anew. Um, and that is optimistic because that really is the ethical orientation that we need to build on. Right. Those are the voices that need to be centered and in ways in which, you know, were contestations earlier, but now hopefully have more space to be in leadership roles. Always were in leadership roles, but now are also in leadership roles in, quote unquote, mainstream feminist movements. Right. Because the mainstream feminist movement has imploded in some ways. And instead, we see the ongoing work of social movements take that place, right, rather than a kind of homogenous, dominant idea of what feminism needs to be or look like. 
So I'm optimistic about that, the genuine, meaningful heterogeneity and diversity and leadership of Black and Indigenous women, of queer feminist organizing, of sex worker organizing. The piece that I'm less optimistic about is how do we meaningfully engage with this new social media kind of terrain, right? How does it not become constant hashtags? I mean, in some ways, the radicalization process is so much faster because there's a democratization of how we can access media, right? We're not relying on newspapers. Our access to information is faster. We can radicalize ourselves faster. Once we get interested, we're able to access so much more information. But then the processes of what we do with that, how do we build collective structures? And by that, I don't mean bureaucracies. I mean, how do we build collective movement spaces to discuss, to debate, to grow, you know, to build our community organizing skills, all of that kind of intangible work that is the work of, of social movement change, that is harder to grapple with, particularly the ones that take us beyond the cycles of mobilization. And by that, I'm not in any way saying that's not happening. I'm just saying that that is a new kind of thing we have to contend with in the context of the pandemic. And how do we build that web of social relations that really allows us to continue through those cycles, right? That allows us to continue our work. So that is one thing that I'm uh, thoughtful about. But overall, I'm, I'm so optimistic. But I'm always encouraged when I see those polls that are, you know, like 40% of Canadians believe that we should defund the police. Like that's unimaginable in many ways, right? Like many of us and many before have always fought to defund and abolish the police, but to have more and more folks thinking along those lines, one can only have optimism, right? It shows that people are are aligning and coming alongside and are being guided uh, by Black queer feminism, are being guided by abolition feminism, are being guided by Indigenous feminisms. And so, but that, of course, isn't enough. But I do find some encouragement in that. But yeah, the question is, you know, where next, right? I wish I could share everyone's optimism. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think I, I've been talking to a friend of mine about, like, the concept of the idea that we're people are being radicalized towards justice. And I was like, but the opposite is actually also happening. You know, you see the anti-mask protests. You see people really, you know, vociferously being in defense of the police who maybe otherwise might not have been you know, registered an opinion other than like they like the police. And so I think the opposite is also happening for every step forward. There's a backlash to that step forward. Um, and so that's, you know, that kind of brings me to my next question, which is how do we contend with an opposition that is also just becoming as organized on social media? How does feminism grapple with, you know, these uh, regressive movements that are coming together? You're seeing right wing nationalist groups coalescing together. Um, Nora, I know you've dealt with them personally and it's the question that you, you know, talk about in the book. How does feminism really grapple with this evolution? Yeah, um, I think that, um, like, as, as you said, and, uh, you know, as we all know, that the violent white supremacy is literally baked into Canada. And so the fact that we're seeing more people be openly violent, whitely supremacist, <laughs> is, you know, how much of that is it was hidden or how much of that are people radicalizing towards this moment? Certainly in Quebec, what we see, which is very unique to this province, is because of the multilingualism here between French and English, there's uh, definitely this axis of France, United States, Canada, uh, so European, American, Canadian, white supremacy, racism, fascism, that is very, very, very dangerous. And because of that nexus, it makes Quebec a very important location for international white supremacist organizing, uh, which we've seen, you can see in a whole bunch of different ways. But I think that what's happening more is simply that 
all of the lies of liberalism, like all of the lies that these extremes never existed within society and that centrism was what everyone kind of accepted as being our dominant status quo, uh, liberalism is collapsing. And that idea that there hasn't been these fringe or these extremes is not necessarily true. We're just seeing them, I think, appear in a different way now. And um, and for sure, the the internet brings people together who wouldn't otherwise necessarily know each other, and they they can they radicalize each other, and it becomes really really violent and dangerous. But one of the things that I've been very confused by, and I and I, and I write about this, is where is the quote unquote feminist movement? Whether it's a formal feminist movement or people saying, as a feminist, I am doing this, fighting against the far right, because it seems to me like that's a very natural confrontation that needs to happen, and that's especially white women. Because white women play such a disgusting role within white supremacy as well, which is equal parts innocence, but then also like child bearers and protectors of the white race and all this kind of garbage. And so how do we then fight against this far right sentiment that's both organizing online and organizing in our communities? And oftentimes, you know, like, first of all, it is dangerous work. And so like, you know, women are less likely to take risks when it feels dangerous for a whole bunch of socialized and legitimate reasons. Uh, but because it's dangerous work, it also means that we need to be organized in ways to help protect people who are the ones who are putting themselves out to confront the far right. And I think that the lack of feminist analysis in fighting the far right has meant that it's just become this weird left and right macho male kind of space where kind of like everyone get caught, caught in the crossfire and we don't really have a strategy at all to deal with the far right beyond Antifa or organizing which is, you know, spotty across country and not not necessarily going to be able to kind of successfully confront the far right. And so that's something I've been thinking a lot about. But how do we build and how how do you take a feminist analysis into this space and meaningfully confront these folks, give each other strength to know that you can stand up to white supremacists and say, like, what, are you going to kill me? And then, you know, hopefully they don't and find ways to organize to actually protect one another. Uh, when I launched my book, Sandy Hudson was mentioning that in uh, Los Angeles, there's organizations that actually come to help move people when they're receiving death threats. They actually find them temporary places to live and give them like the tools to be able to withstand these kinds of attacks from the far right. And I think we're very behind in that on Canada. And so I'm very interested to think about also how do we can build those kinds of communities to keep each other safe as these threats uh, becoming increasingly brash, even if they've always existed. Beverly, I wanted to get your response to how does a feminist movement respond to this evolution? Okay, a couple of things. First, I want to address the issue of optimism. There is the opportunity to move forward, to change, to reconceptualize what, you know, this world could look like, what feminism could look like, how feminism can actually reshape this world. So the optimism I'm thinking about is that which we can actually take up. The reality of the matter is, is that there are some areas here politically where we continue, you said it actually very well, that where we continue to see these as we move, you know, and we embrace movements and we embrace some kind of forward moving, we see more repression. But that is the way how power gets constituted. As we move forward, there is always this terrain that pushes back. And that's how power works in, in political activism. It's always worked that way. Now it's even much more obvious because I would argue that that struggle right now is much more fluid than it was in the days when they were actually organizing around particular structures. So um, in terms of where the feminist movement, I first think we have to stop 
kind of thinking of feminism as white as white women in this country. Um, and I think when we talk about the feminist movement, we often think, well, you know, we're not seeing the feminist movement do this. But there are those of us on the ground who have actually been organizing around a gendered frame around policing, right? I mean, I've been doing it for 40 years, right? In terms of dealing with police, it's always been a gendered frame. And so the work that is being done, indigenous women have been doing it. I mean, the whole idea of the Idle No More movement has been around and to the fact that, uh, I think it was um, uh, Nora, that capitalism itself is actually in somehow being undermined. And this was clear at the beginning of the pandemic, that capitalism actually is being undermined, right? So there's an implosion happening. I mean, we're seeing it in the US, but we certainly saw it here around the pandemic, at the beginning of the pandemic, when the government was throwing money at people. When does the government throw money at you? Right? When does capitalism actually allow itself to just divulge, divorce itself from its ground? But what happens in those places is that there's a constant a grappling back and forth. So yes, so we are at this particular juncture where it becomes, how do we as feminists actually move forward? And I think that, again, and I want to say, and I want to emphasize that feminism as it is, is not about you know, white women uh, kind of mobilizing the movement. It's about white women actually seeing that black and indigenous and racialized feminists are actually mobilizing the movement and what their role is in terms of supporting and undermining the nation status that exist. That was Beverly Bain, Nora Loretto, Harsha Walia, and Vicky Mochama on Gendering the Political Landscape as part of a panel discussion from Social Justice Week 2020. Thanks for listening to Speaking for Change on CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto, a retrospective on Social Justice Week programming at Toronto Metropolitan University. Every week this semester, we're highlighting a talk or panel from the past 12 years of Social Justice Weeks. Tune in at the same time next week for a new episode. I'm your host, Kike Roach. Thanks for listening. <laughs>